This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Please welcome Dr. Chon Noriega, Director of the UCLA Chicano Studies Research Center. Thank you, Gabriela. Uh, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce and moderate uh, the discussion here today. Our, our nominal topic is demography and population studies as a conduit to systems change. But this is really about Leo and it's about his impact in this arena and as it relates uh, primarily at this point to the census. I'll briefly introduce our speakers and then invite each of them to spend no more than five minutes talking about their own work and uh, their personal link uh, through that work uh, to Leo. I, I do want to start by, by thanking Arturo Vargas for a wonderful um, keynote presentation. And uh, I think he really made clear the stakes, uh, but also the phenomenal role that Leo has played, and I think the model and the legacy that he has kind of laid out for us. I will also note that when he had everybody stand up, that he took uh, something that each of us on the panel was going to do at the end of our talks uh, as a way of ensuring a standing ovation. Um, so <laughs> so <laughs> actually, I, I got that from Vilma because uh, she did the data. <laughs> she was going to say that. So. Anyway, I'm delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Carlos Arce, who's the founder and executive director of uh, USNES. Uh, he's been a behavioral scientist for over 40 years, uh, developing uh, culture-centric models that objectively measure the intercultural affinities and aversions among Americans. Our next speaker is Dr. Vilma Ortiz, who's in the uh, UCLA Department of Sociology, uh, who studies socioeconomic experiences of Latinos in the U.S., focusing both on specific Latino groups as well as comparative studies with other racial ethnic groups. And she and Eddie Tellez, who you'll hear later, were the co-author of Generations of Exclusion, Mexican-Americans, Assimilation, and Race. Uh, our next uh, speaker is uh, Dr. Abel Valenzuela, who's in the Department of Urban Planning, also the Department of Chicano Studies. He's the uh, director of the uh, Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, and he's the special advisor to the chancellor on immigration. Uh, and he's not a very good skier. <laughs> uh, his research on day labor and immigrant labor markets has helped frame national um, uh, public and policy narratives on immigrants and low-wage laborers. And last, last but not least, uh, Dr. Gagana Kojabacheva. Uh, I practiced this all night, and I thought I had it down. Um, but anyway, she's at the University of Michigan, Flint. Uh, she is a Bruin through and through. Uh, I suspect that she uh, went to the grade school here. She got her BA, her MA, her PhD, and her first postdoctoral fellowship at UCLA, all in wildly different uh, arenas of economics, urban plannings, and public health. Um, her research focuses on reproductive health as well as maternal and child health in the U.S. and Europe. Now with that, uh, I'm going to ask Carlos if he can kick us off and say a little bit about his work in relationship to uh, Leo. Thanks, John. Um, just before we started, Sean said um, he was going to put us in order of age, from the oldest to the youngest. Uh, and, and that's actually true, because in a sense, age means uh, how long have we known Leo. And so um, I want to highlight uh, four of what I consider to be Leo's uh, exceptional achievements that attest to his early, consistent, multifaceted, and unappreciated contributions to Chicano research. I'll start with Leo's, from before I knew him, with Leo's academic trajectory, which was pretty uncommon for his times. Raised in a strong, achievement-oriented, first-generation Mexican-American family in El Paso, in Pico Rivera, in El Paso, born and raised in Pico Rivera, he graduated, graduated from El Rancho High in 62. His father and namesake, Leobardo Estrada, um, was a prominent Baptist leader who ministered in California, Texas, Mexico, New York City, Europe, and several other places. Leo and his three sisters all attended and graduated from Baylor University. He graduated in 1966, 
and immediately went to Florida State, finishing coursework in two years and completing his PhD in sociology less than two years after that in 1970 when he was just barely 25 years old. For that generation, that's a major fast track achievement. In many ways, he was in the loner generation of the only or the first Chicano to do this or be that. His dissertation <laughs> on Mexican-American elderly basically gave birth to the field of gerontology of Latinos. A funny thing is that Leo Estrada and John Garcia, the, the retired political scientist at Arizona, spent all of their graduate years in different floors of Bellamy Hall in Tallahassee without ever meeting each other. Three years, <laughs> two floors apart, same building. Uh, those were really lonely times with few Latino mentors and role models. I introduced them to each other in Ann Arbor at an early meeting of the National Chicano Research Network. I first met, met Leo um, in Washington, D.C. At, at a meeting of the Population Reference Bureau, and that kind of inspired me to think of demography as not just a fancy word, but as a practice that could be used to do a lot of interesting and valuable research. The second of Leo's, so that's kind of like his background. The second of Leo's achievements I want to share today is his contribution to the National Chicano Research Network and its many activities at the Survey Research Center in, at the University of Michigan. In the mid to late 70s, he spent the greater part of two and a half years as a visiting researcher and was a strong supporter and frequent contributor to La Red, our monthly newsletter that we published publish without fail or without lateness for over 10 years, 120 issues or more. Much more importantly, he helped us secure the detailed 1970 census data framework and data tabulations that we used for the underpinning of our sample design for the National Chicano Study that he, and he was additionally the guru, mentor, and quiet advisor to the growing team of mostly Chicano doctoral students from all over the country pursuing degrees in several key disciplines in Ann Arbor. The third, also in Ann Arbor, was his contribution to the Ford Foundation-funded project to support completion of dissertations by Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, and Native Americans that were all but, all but dissertation doctoral students in many universities around the country. Toward the end of the 1970s, the foundation was gradually shifting the focus of very large graduate fellowship program and had funded, that had funded the graduate education of several hundred minority students. An evaluation the foundation was conducting involved a census of grantees to locate them and determine their status, and I was asked to do that. With Leo's help, we persuaded Ford to allocate some of its leftover funds <laughs> to a program to intensively stimulate and provide space and support for grantees that had been in ABD status for a couple of years or more and were no longer eligible for Ford support. The resultant program provided opportunities for over 30 former grantees to spend one to four months in Ann Arbor working intensively on their dissertation. They were provided a stipend, housing, childcare, document production, and most importantly, virtually instantaneous reviews of and commentary about the writing they were producing. Pressure. <laughs> uh, this iterative process relied on several established academics. I was going to say senior academics, but the reality is that most of us were kind of senior mentors, but we were really only a few years older than these graduate students that we were trying to push. Leo was a great listener and compulsive reader and a really incredible advisor to them. The outcome was that all but one of the participants completed the dissertations in those two years that helped the Ford Foundation and justified their relaunch of a new generational graduate fellowship program. And finally, my fourth recollection of Leo, and most important one, when I moved from Ann Arbor to Austin to start a research consulting business, I stopped being an academic 35, 35 years ago. Um, all the way to a few months before his passing, Leo and I collaborated frequently and on many levels over more than those three decades. He was our frequent advisor, brainstorming and debate partner, demographic data problem solver, 
and by far the best critical sounding board one can imagine. He worked formally for Newstats and Geostats, our two companies, as a consultant and advisor. In roughly 10 large household mobility survey projects, he was an active subcontractor who helped us build the demographic resources for sample designs on our very large-scale surveys. In the first half of last year, as he, as he saw the probability of the end, he again was a wonderful advisor and supporter for the nonprofit organization that some colleagues and I have started and that I'm now affiliated with. Near the end, he encouraged his wife, Ibelise, to join the ASNES Board of Directors, where we hope to continue work that extends and is inspired by Leo's commitment to giving back and promoting the well-being of all Americans. Thank you, Leo Iberis and the Estrada family for allowing me to the good fortune of our wonderful friendship. And thank you, Leo, for being here. Thank you for this uh, honor to, to speak about uh, my colleague, Leo Estrada. I met Leo at the University of Michigan in the 1980s. I was a postdoc there and working with Carlos Alce. So it's so wonderful to be full circle here on this panel with Carlos today. I had recently finished my PhD. This was the first time I was away from home since I, a Puerto Riqueña, was born, grew up, and studied in New York City. It was an important time for both my personal and intellectual development. One of the important aspects of that time that I spent at Michigan was my introduction to Chicano academia. Carlos was amazing at network, networking and brought many friends and fellow academics through Michigan during that time. Uh, and the project that he mentions working with these uh, dissertation students, I actually also helped, on, helped out with it too. I don't know if you remember that. Leo was one of these folks who came through I found him thoughtful, encouraging, compassionate. He sought to bring out the best in everyone. He was so positive, and he encouraged us always to do our best. I didn't realize it at the time, but Leo would end up being my colleague here at UCLA for several decades. My own work has paralleled Leo's. He was an expert on using census data for policy purposes, for, especially for redrawing and uh, census uh, districts. But he did so much more. In preparing for these remarks, I found some amazing example, examples of Leo's work. One was that he helped create the most comprehensive and complete electronic database of parks, beaches, and green space in LA County. I didn't know this. This information provided the city project, uh, was provided to the city project, which they in turn used to create or protect new urban parks and to provide access to billions of dollars in local, state, and federal park, water, resource, and school funds. As the folks of the city project say on their website, no data, no justice. Using census for research purposes is something that I've done throughout my own career. While I've used other data sources, I have regularly returned to census data uh, during my research career. One of my earliest publications was on the selectivity of Puerto Rican migrants with census data. And right now I'm working on an article on the census and the creation of the Latino-Hispanic category and addressing many of the issues that Arturo raised with us in his, in his talk. So Leo and my work, while not similar, dovetails very nicely. The two issues that were important to us are how do we measure the people who make up the Latino category and how well do we count those in those categories? So both how do we, what questions do we ask of them and then are we counting them uh, adequately? And as Arturo mentioned, the better, we, the better our questions are, the more the efforts are to undermine our counts. If we don't have good measurements and good counts, redistricting efforts are compromised. Political representation is undermined. So the research on the Latino experience, oh, and so is the research undermined on the Latino experience that uses census data. So while our, experience, our contributions are different, I see them as very parallel. 
The last time I saw Leo was at the 25th anniversary of establishing the Chicana and Chicano Studies Department here at UCLA. It was held of May of last year. Leo and I sat at the back of the room in the faculty center and chatted. I asked him, do you remember those political battles we had that led to the establishment of the Chicano Studies Department? He agreed and we laughed. Um, someone came by and took our photo. I wish I had that photo now. And then I asked Leo how he was doing, and he shared about his cancer. He was honest and thoughtful about what he was going through. As he spoke, I thought to myself, he looks good, he looks healthy, a little thinner. I listened and I offered good wishes. And then I said to him, are you scared? And he answered emphatically, no. He went on to share that he was grateful for the support of his family and how his wife and children were rallying around him. It was a good conversation. I was struck by the dignity that Leo showed as he faced this, this, as he faced this phase of his life. He was as measured and thoughtful about his cancer as he had always been about academic stuff. I was grateful that he brought me into this circle, even if only for a few minutes. When I heard five months later that Leo had passed away, I appreciated our last conversation even more. I was grateful that he had given me the opportunity to hear about his cancer and to wish him well. I hope that I had given him something too. So today with the rest of you, I deeply mourn the passing of Leo Estrada. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> it's a huge, huge honor for me to be here and to pay tribute to a friend and a colleague. Um, so I'll, I'll begin with the personal um, and then end with the impact. Um, so it was um, in the hot summer of 1987, um, a full six years um, before I was hired here at UCLA, that I remember meeting Leobardo F. Estrada. We met in downtown um, at the Department of Water and Power Building at a meeting convened by, by B. Um, and um, this meeting, um, I was thrilled to death because I was invited and I would be meeting for the first time the very well-known UCLA Latino professor. Um, and so I was thrilled, excited. After the meeting, um, and it's vague to me, um, but it was related to redistricting. Um, I approached myself, I approached rather um, Leo and I introduced myself. Then a first year graduate student at MIT. I was working on my master's in city planning and if you're, um, I think a city planning or an urban planning student anywhere in the country, you know about the work of Leobardo Estrada um, at UCLA. I gave him what I'm certain was a two-minute, really incoherent rambling <laughs> of my project to which he responded with a very, very nice smile, a warm smile. It made me feel really good because I knew I had flubbed um, the approach of my elevator speech. Um, and he said, send me the proposal, which I did. And true to form, at least true to Leobarda, Leobardo F. Estrada form, a few weeks later, I received detailed and very thoughtful feedback. I was stunned. It was faster than some of my MIT professors. <laughs> I had just met the man. Um, I am certain I wasn't very impressive, perhaps with the one exception that I had gone back east um, to um, pursue my graduate training. Um, Leo was super busy and a very, very important person. Um, he was a god in many ways to a very young um, a, a PhD student who was trying to figure things out. Um, I was from Los Angeles and so again meeting this titan was just super, super important. Um, yet he was very, very kind and generous to me and he began um, my own training and relationship with me, again with a kind and a generous smile, a spirit of giving 
in a role that he always took seriously, which was that as a teacher. Leo has always been my teacher, and to this day I'm really profoundly grateful for his role in my own success and trajectory on this campus. Some of you might know, uh, when I was close to finishing my doctorate, I was um, at Berkeley, and it was at the, during the time period when Leo was up um, for director of the Census Bureau. Um, he reached out to me uh, and said, hey, I'm moving to DC, and if things work out, I'll be there, um, and I'll leave UCLA permanently permanently, um, and if they don't, I'm still going to leave for a couple of years, and I need somebody to teach my courses. I was stunned, right? He asked me to do this. I wasn't quite yet done, um, but I took the bait, and I then traveled and came down um, to UCLA, and that began, in many ways, my own um, formation and, and, and career here. Um, and so, in many ways, I pay tribute to him opening that door for me um, here at UCLA. Um, I believe that without a doubt, um, and I think the evidence is really clear, it's unequivocal in my mind, um, that he is the most important professor and teacher, I think, in the world to train a cadre of students, practitioners, junior faculty, and researchers on the intersection of Latino demographic change and its impact on planning communities, regions, and on our country. And let me also emphasize another point. His generosity goes beyond just Latino or African American or scholars of color. He really does open his doors to anybody who's interested in the work that he does and in, of course, promoting social change. Leo did all of this while being a father and a husband. And so I want to also acknowledge that very important contribution as well and to thank his family for sharing Leo um, with us um, and for sharing him with UCLA for such a long, long time. The impact. Leo's contributions as a teacher and a mentor I think is really well known. In fact, I think when people speak about Leo, it's usually in that context. Um, I usually talk about him in that regard. Um, and that then leads um, some of us to push back a little bit on that narrative, only in the sense that he had really, really significant and important academic contributions. Um, he contributed significantly, as already been noted, to a more diverse faculty pipeline um, including um, training faculty and junior scholars on policy-driven research that historically impacted California voting rights and the election of officials who might better represent Latino, immigrant, and other underrepresented groups. His work with MALDEF and their voting rights division including his work with the famed civil rights and voting rights icon, Joaquin Avila, will easily, easily be one of his most important scholarly contributions that changed forever the political landscape of the County Board of Supervisors and the Los Angeles City Council. His early demographic work and training from Florida State University led this pathway and he was engaged in this work as a leader, a scholar, an expert witness who often sat opposite from faculty at this very university in the Department of Geography. His participation in one of my department's Chicano studies was also inspirational, and he more than often brought clear and steady commentary and advice when we were struggling or when we needed to address a student issue, or just needed sage advice. When I was chair, there was a few times when Leo would offer guidance and great advice. He knew well and understood the university, and he would often break down very complicated relationships and processes into more simple and tangible actions. Leo. I pay tribute to you, and from the bottom of my heart, 
I thank you for being my teacher, for providing that very early, early inspiration that, that I could actually do what I'm doing. And for always and regularly checking in on me, my career, and for making sure I was progressing. He always, always did that. And it always made me feel good. Even those couple of years prior to tenure, when he would really sit me down, open up the Vita, and tell me I needed to do a little bit more so that the case could be easily um, accepted. Thank you. Thanks. You want to pass that microphone down? Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. I first met Leo while he was my professor in an undergraduate class at UCLA. Leo would pick on students in the class and he would ask them to answer questions um, critically about the day's uh, topics. I was a shy student and so I decided that I would drop the class. <laughs> um, but Leo asked me a question, he was supportive of my answer, he helped me build my confidence and so I decided to stay in the class. And that decision transformed my life because it was through his support and mentorship that I am able to do what I love to do today in the field of public health. Towards the end of that semester when I took the undergraduate class, I went to his office hours. Um, I needed a letter of recommendation and I was hesitant to ask. He didn't even let me finish my sentence and he told me that he would gladly write me a letter. I always remember that moment because I realized that he really wanted to make his students feel welcome and supported. He was interested in what brought me to the United States, in my personal story, in what my aspirations were. He encouraged me to pursue my master's degree in urban planning at UCLA. One thing that he did while I was working on my master's thesis that I truly appreciated was that he asked me to read every page of the thesis during his office hours, and he would give me suggestions on the spot. And that was a wonderful opportunity for me as well to improve my thesis. I know that he did this for many students, and you can imagine how many hours that took. And so he was truly passionate about helping students improve. Leo always promoted my development. He encouraged me to pursue my doctoral degree. Uh, Evelise and he celebrated the special moments in my life. He, um, uh, while I was going through the 10-year process, he also offered me invaluable advice. We often talked about social injustices, and um, during uh, one of our last conversations, he told me, I wish the world was a better place, and it is not, but there are ways to survive with dignity. So we, um, with this, I would like to turn to one research project that Leo involved me as a graduate student researcher. Um, Leo, uh, in 2003, began working with the Office of the Patient Advocate to assess and improve cultural and linguistic services for patients in California. And that project was very important because it led to policy changes in California and the nation. Leo administered the very first survey among all healthcare plans in California to find out about the cultural and language services being provided. Approximately 20% of patients in um, California either do not speak English or have limited English proficiency. And as you know, they, need, um, uh, they may need uh, translation, translated written materials, uh, cultural services. Um, and importantly, Leo's work contributed to the development of legislation that required that all healthcare plans in California have a language assistance program in 2009. And with this, I would like to thank the organizers for the wonderful opportunity to honor Professor Estrada.
Well, thank you all. Uh, it's been very informative, but also very moving in terms of the connections between uh, the, the role as a mentor uh, and the research that's really designed to have an impact. I wanted to pick up on that a little bit and just note we've been, they've been flashing the time, but they keep handing up to 15 minutes. So that explains why we may have gone a little bit over the time we had um, with, with this part. But in many ways, the speakers have answered some of the questions that were going to be asked. So I'd like to just pivot a little bit and have kind of a lightning round, and we can open up for uh, discussions. You know, when I first came here in 1992, Leo was one of the people that kind of latched onto as a senior faculty uh, who really could give me some no bullshit advice. And that's where I want to pivot in terms of there's this idea of mentorship on the one side and then the research that has an impact on the other side. They're working with the same logic uh, because what Leo did is was sit me down and said, well, here's, here's the rules for getting tenure. It's, it's the facts, it's the data, it's the policy, whatever you is. It's some kind of rational grid. And then this is what happens. And what he helped teach me, and I think he did that to his students in terms of, of the work they do, is how to take that data and transform it into impact. Because the data alone, the facts alone, have no power. They have no impact unless you put them into the context in which that will happen. So I wanted to just throw that out there fairly quickly. Uh, if, if any of you have just like a minute to just say something about that transformation as you do it in your work, as you've seen it in, in, um, in Leo's. Um, I, I, I'll put Vilma on the spot a little bit just to say, because what I heard you talking about, you do very different work. You're doing basic research, he's doing applied research. But at the crux of that is a question about getting the methodology down. And why is that important? <laughs> Small question. Um, well, the, the methodology is the basis from which we are able to draw conclusions. If you've got bad methods, if you've collected the data in a sloppy way, if you didn't ask the right questions, then you can't use the information. And um, measuring and collecting and counting in the right way are so important both in the policy arena and in the basic research arena. And these are not really distinct worlds. These are worlds that kind of, they, they flow from one to the other because you know the basic research we do frequently informs the policy questions. And the policy issues frequently inform our basic research. So yeah, the methods, how we do things, doing them uh, in a way that collects information, um, that is as true to reality as we can make it. Nothing is ever completely correct. There's some, always some error. But as, as true to reality as we think we can get to is ultimately important for both policy and, and research questions. I'm going to come back to Carlos at the end, but uh, Abel, do you have something uh, you want to kind of weigh in there? And, and I'm thinking even of your own research. Well, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people on campus who's... Um, understanding of data, in particular census data, um, is not as complicated as it was, say, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I think one of his efforts was to demystify public use of census data. And um, he never shied away from talking to anybody about the limitations as well as the strengths of data, um, census data in particular, and he was very honest about what it could tell us and what it could not tell us. Um, but it was never a conversation about, no, don't use census data, but rather, okay, you can do that with this, but you can't do that. Um, and so for me in particular, he demystified um, the process of mining a very complicated uh, data set. This was about 20 years ago when it was much more complicated than it is now. But I see him as um, one of the few persons people that made the availability of that data much more friendly and accessible mm -hmm. all the way down to, um, I would say, um, the undergraduate, but certainly also um, community-based organizations. And, and, and by that, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, looking at census data, that's 
There's a lot of sophistication there. There's a science behind that. Um, none of that ever um, prevented Leo from bridging um, the power and the impact of that data mm. at the most basic of levels, but also at the highest levels of sophistication, yeah. all the way up to the federal government, uh, yeah. and of course, uh, peer review articles and in mm -hmm. training researchers, right? And so for me, that's one of the lasting impacts. I'm yeah. not as intimidated about census data. I could easily <laughs> talk to him about that and, um, or send students to him yeah. um, who wanted to pursue projects in that regard. Gagana, I want to go back to where you started, uh, walking into a classroom and immediately realizing you needed to walk out. Um, <laughs> and what I'd like you to just say a little bit about is how your experience with Leo and, and with the training that you got, how that defines how you teach today. When you go into the classroom, what are you trying to achieve beyond what's there in the textbook? Um, well, for example, uh, the example I gave that he um, asks students to read the thesis in his office, um, I find that amazing. Um, and even today, because I know what the demands of the jobs are. And so um, Leo's first priority, I believe, I mean, um, um, in his career, were to help promote the development of the students. Um, and so I cannot say that I am there yet in terms of what he is doing. I am trying. I am, um, I am thinking about him and how much time he spent with the student, and I'm working towards doing that the way that he did it. Um, I referred also many, uh, well, several of my friends um, um, to him, and, um, and he became their mentor. And uh, I know that some of them actually ask students to read the thesis in their office so that they can improve their work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one thing that uh, he uh, asked us to do in the undergraduate class, and uh, that was uh, a unique assignment um, that I haven't uh, uh, had in any other classes, is that he asked us to um, identify a community-based organization that is working on a cause in the community and to become involved with this organization. Um, and so when I was in the class, I, um, I became um, involved with people who were striking for higher wages, and I would go on the street, I would hold signs, and I became part of that movement. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a, a very interesting hands-on project, and so I think that he wants his students to be involved in the community, uh, in that grassroots uh, change. Mm -hmm. Thank you, yes, you, re you remind me that he he would teach, he would mentor directly, do this, but so much of his impact has also been just leading by example. So I'd like to end th this part of it with Carlos, uh, since you've known him almost as long as I have. <laughs> um, if you could just look into the past and look into the, pr bring it back to the present and just say a little bit about your thoughts about what Leo would say today about the current anti-immigrant nativism that we're facing the revival of what's been ongoing demonization of Mexicans and Central Americans. Give us a little glimpse of kind of where he would weigh in right now. Well, I think first of all, he would probably speak softly, probably with no anger or resentment or harsh language. Uh, it'd be decent. Uh, during the past year, as things got kind of bad, we had many conversations about the issues, about positions, and about the rhetoric underlying the midterm elections of 2018. He correctly predicted that uh, a lot of politicians that were running on xenophobic uh, rhetoric would be vulnerable and could be defeated. It's really sad to me that he died um, a few days before the election, so he didn't get the results. <laughs> I tried to project them to him, but uh, I don't know if he got them. Um, he was right. Um, that kind of rhetoric is a losing rhetoric, and we gotta believe it. He believed it. As to what he would say today, 
I think he would tell us that the job, and I'm repeating what other people have said, is not done, and that to get it done, we need to be methodical, strategic, collaborative, and definitely guided by data and insights. Thank you. I believe we have at least 10 minutes for uh, questions. So if uh, anyone from the floor uh, has a question, so we do have people roaming with uh, a microphone, uh, or you can be really loud. <laughs> uh, hand up over here. Well, right behind you. He's right behind you. Yes, I'm David Diaz. Uh, started in 1984, Leo started bugging me to obtain my doctor, and I kept wondering, are you truly my friend? You want to put me through that torture? Are you, are you serious? I like you. <laughs> uh, I entered the program in 88, and I completed my uh, doctorate in 94. Um, I have a question, but I want to preface it by uh, talking about the importance of Georgina's research with Leo in 2003. Uh, over 20 years earlier, um, Geraldine Zapata and Margarita Mendez uh, hired me to be the director of the Plaza Community Child Abuse and Neglect Agency in East LA. I'm not an MSW, but Jerry told me one thing, save the agency, it's dying, keep the doors open for a year. I did. But the other thing that I remember is that this time, in around 1980, 81, this was the only bilingual, bicultural, child abuse and neglect and domestic violence agency in LA County. The only bilingual, it still stuns me, so I just want to emphasize the importance of that. Uh, we're talking about demographics and Leo's expertise. Um, this might be a better question for Arturo, but we're here. I have always felt that there is one institution in U.S. government that's unconstitutional if we're to believe one person, one vote, and that's the U.S. Senate. Let's take Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota, and North Dakota. They have maybe a quarter of the population of L.A. County. They have 10 U.S. Senators. We have none. If you take the 10 west, far west and mountain states and combine them, California still has over twice the population. They have 20 Senators, and we have two. When or will this ever happen that the U.S. Senate um, follows the Constitution? and Leo's work at demography of one person, one vote. Anybody want to take that up, or do we want to kick it over to Tom Sainz and uh, the next panel? Because <laughs> Tom does have an answer. <laughs> but you raise a very important question, um, uh, and particularly as it relates to representation. But I do think we'll boot it over to Tom, because he was taking notes. Any other questions? And, and uh, we do have a few minutes. Um, and, uh, or if you just uh, want to share and resonate with what's been said uh, up here on the panel. Uh, yeah. Hello, hi, um, my name is Sofia Garcia. I'm the GIS analyst for the Dolores Huerta Foundation. I did not know Leo, but my father uh, was his student and talks about him fondly. Uh, my question I, th I think could be directed towards anybody. Uh, being a GIS analyst for a community-based organization, we always are really questioning how can academic spaces, how can uh, people at UCLA really do prolonged, um, truly collaborative projects with community-based organizations like the Dolores Huerta Foundation. We're currently working with some students out of the University of Santa Cruz on a year-long project, and we are really excited about it and would love to see more year-long projects like that. Um, I went to Wellesley College and I did some projects where we would just come in for maybe a week or so and then leave. Um, but I, I'm telling you, as a again, from the community-based side, how can we see more long-term actual collaborative projects that would benefit students, professors, but also people in the community? Well, that's an Abel question, if I ever heard one. <laughs> And we would love to collaborate with anybody here, too. So another plug. It, it's, it, it's possible. It's hard to do. Um, it requires um, a lot of trust. It requires um, collaborative research agendas, um, collaborative vetting processes, um, and then I think a lot of advanced planning. Um, Leo was very good at 
all of those sorts of um, processes. Um, but there are other faculty on this campus who follow that same model and example and um, really value the impact of engaging um, with non quote unquote academics, but with thought leaders um, in the community, such as yourself, to collectively problem solve. Um, he always believed um, that um, expertise really came from community-based organizations, right? That there were different layers of expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and so academics could bring something to the table and so could folks who work in the community and create maps or analyze data or who know their neighborhoods because they live in those neighborhoods and so can complement the nuances that data um, sometimes cannot. Um, so um, yeah. I would welcome a future conversation about that. Yes, and uh, I would too through the Chicano Studies Research Center. Uh, we're always looking for ways to collaborate. It's not always directly through a research project uh, per se, but it's always in some ways built around um, evidence-based research. So. John, can I say one more thing? Or I just want to say that there are two things that I think um, Leo really also mm -hmm. um, left, uh, more specifically to UCLA. Um, and that the first, I think, and one that isn't talked about as, as much, is what I call his role as a student advocate or intervener. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and one's um, course of being a professor at UCLA, you come across all kinds of students with different strengths and um, resources or lack thereof. And sometimes you have situations where um, the work needs a retooling or um, an intervention so that um, one can get across the finish line. Um, and Leo was excellent at doing that, which some would would, would say he was um, somebody who could rescue somebody who was falling through the cracks. And he did that not only with PhD students, but with master's students and junior faculty. So very important role um, and legacy that he left at UCLA. And, and it is such an important role that, that many faculty play that goes, it's completely invisible. It will show up nowhere on your resume. No. Uh, it will not get you promoted. But it gets people into the university, it gets them through the university, and gets them out into the world. Right. Uh, Carlos, you, you've inspired uh, the panel here, so uh, Carlos also has, wants to add to that. Well, it's, um, it's an outsider looking in, visiting um, UCLA. Um, I, I want to be maybe almost brutally honest, and that is that um, Leo paid a price for all he did. Mm -hmm. He never got promoted to full professorship. Um, and uh, to me, it's shameful that given his contributions to this university, to um, the city of LA, the state of California, that UCLA never found a way to promote him, even if they did so. I don't believe that he was formally promoted. Um, was he? I don't think he was. Um, I checked. Um, and, uh, and so he paid a price on behalf of all of us. And so it's really important to, to be as honest as Abel kind of pointed out, that it's tough. And to make the sacrifice like Leo did um, is something that is pretty rare. I will echo that and note that Leo's uh, faculty line actually came, came through the Chicano Studies Research Center, and I worked with the two prior deans trying to address that, and not successfully. Um, but it's really a failure. We now have uh, this uh, diversity as a criteria that you can add into your merits and promotions, but it's a long time coming, and I think a lot of people that really helped make this institution open through their work that wasn't being recognized uh, really has to, to be taken into account as well. I think we have time for one brief question and, uh, or statement or maybe in an, uh, Yes, we're going, we're going to the father now. <laughs>
Hi, my name is Jesus Garcia. I'm a student of Leo's, and I was at the U.S. Census Bureau. He was also denied the position of director of the census mm -hmm. uh, because of political reasons. I was there. He asked me, like Abel, to come work for him, and then time passed. He didn't come in, and then he didn't get uh, appointed there. So, yeah, Leo also paid a price um, for our behalf. I'm going to try to flip this around and get us upbeat so that the next panel is not starting on a down note. But uh, yes, one, one, let's do one more. So you were very brief, and I appreciate that. So we can do one more question. Very brief. What do we have to do to make sure that he does get it at least now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because all of us can really, are really good fighters in getting what we want. Well, I, I, one thing that Leo taught me about the university is everything's articulated through the dean. Uh, and I think that uh, he retired with a very good dean. And so I think that's a, a question for really a proper recognition uh, of, of him. I do want to, uh, I do have to wrap up, but I do want to thank the panel. It, it's, it's really been, I've, I've known Leo a long time. I know him better now. Uh, I appreciate that everyone has shared a bit of themselves and in the process brought another bit of Leo into the room that many of us did not know. And I think it's really rounded out uh, our view of him as somebody who's had an impact, but also uh, who was a person and, and who really put himself on the line uh, to advance the cause at the university uh, and to have a life and to have a family and, and to be a contributing member of the community. Um, I've been thinking separately, given the times we're in, I've been thinking a lot about something I'm calling scholarly rage. And those of us that work in the area of social justice, you come up against the fact that the facts don't often matter in, in many political contexts, and yet you're committed to them, um, because that's where the truth is. And I really appreciate something that Carlos uh, really, I think, made very, very clear, which is the decency of Leo. I never saw him express that rage, but I know he felt it. It's what guided him. He had an almost freakish equanimity. Uh, he didn't always have an optimistic outlook. He was, after all, quant. And the quantitative scholars always know that the, where the future is and nothing can change it. So that's not optimistic, <laughs> right, <laughs> inherently. Um, but he always maintained that equanimity and that sense that given the facts, there is something you can do with them and there's a place you can take them that will move things forward, even if it is limited in a sense to passing that on to the next generation so that they can take up uh, that cause. And I was really moved to have uh, someone stand up and identify herself as part of a social justice entity and reference her father as having been the student. And that says something about the impact that one person can have. So I want to thank the panel for their presentations, the questions that you asked, and I'm really looking forward to the rest of this afternoon. And, and it's been a wonderful experience sharing um, your own encounters with him and your own thoughts about his work relative to your own careers. And so thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.